You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby joins the Post to discuss how airlines are innovating while keeping safety a top priority. Let's listen. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for the Post. Today on our series, The Path Forward, we're going to be talking about air travel with uh, the CEO of United Airlines, Scott Kirby. Scott has been chief executive for uh, about a year, took over in May after serving four years as president of United. Uh, Scott, welcome to Washington Post Live. Glad to have you. Thanks for having me, David. So let's start talking about your your business. Uh, You uh, have begun offering additional flights. The numbers that I've seen uh, say you're adding 480 flights a day and are now uh, offering an average of more than 3,100 domestic flights every day. Curious about how you've made the decision to increase the number of flights and how you're deciding where to go, which which destinations to add and which not to. Yeah, well, we're encouraged to see the beginnings of the rebound, uh, particularly for leisure demand. And if you look at where we've added flights, they tend to be a lot more focused in leisure markets. So going to Florida, going to Myrtle Beach, going out to the mountain destinations because that's where customers are going. What still hasn't really bounced back yet is business demand. And so those shuttles between Washington National and Chicago or to LaGuardia still have a lot fewer flights than they did a year ago. Our best guess is that that business traffic is gonna start coming back more in earnest in September once people are back, kids are back in school, uh, parents, you know, have the the school uh, relationship and and the ability to go back worked out and the ability to go back in the office. Uh, but for now, you know, we're on the way back. We're not 100% of the way there yet. We should have something like 4,500 flights a day. Uh, but we're definitely on the way back, and it's biased towards the leisure markets. Uh, I want to come back to business travel in a minute, but let me ask you about uh, bringing back staff. Uh, you have said that you're going to begin resuming hiring pilots. Tell, tell us about that and, and what your plans are to ramp back up in terms of staffing. Yeah, so, uh, you know, we had uh, some people take early outs as we went through through the pandemic. The good news for us and for other airlines is the uh, support from the government uh, allowed us to keep essentially all of our staff uh, employed in here. And, and that's important because what it means is we don't have to go through all the training and recertification that would have happened if those people had been furloughed during the pandemic. And so now, as we start to see the light at the end of the tunnel, we can get back actually to hiring and growing. And our guess is that we'll be by about the end of the year is we'll be back to 100% of where we were pre-pandemic. Uh, and we expect to be back on a growth path uh, in, in the years to come. And because of that, we've restarted hiring pilots. Uh, we're hiring in, for the for ground jobs at a number of locations uh, around the country. And it's just wonderful. Uh, instead of talking about losses and cash burn and furloughs uh, to be talking about hiring and talking about the brighter outlook for the future. Do you have any sense of when you're going to be profitable again, given current trends? Well, what we've been saying is that we're not sure on the timing. There's two big variables that we need. One, we need business travel to come back. And two, we need the international borders to reopen. And so the news last week, from you know, the EU president talking about wanting to reopen the EU borders with the United States is really encouraging. It's not done yet. And what we really need to do is we need to get to back to about 
65% of normal levels for business demand and international long haul demand to get to break even. And so, uh, you know, whenever those two things are going to get to 65% is when we'll, we'll be approximately break even. It's anybody's guess. My guess is that business demand is going to get there sometimes towards the end of the year. Um, my guess is that Europe will get there um, by the end of the summer, I hope. Uh, but Asia is going to probably take a little longer before all those borders begin to open. So, you know, it's a, it's an open question, but, you know, towards the end of this year or sometime early next year, that uh, would be my best guess. And on uh, international travel, Scott, where United is such a huge player, I've noted the EU announcement that they're going to let Americans travel again. I'm assuming that that's going to be leisure travel, but I'm curious, with the State Department announcing so many travel advisories, there's stories that eight out of 10 countries in the world have travel advisories now. That must be a problem in terms in terms of getting people even to think about about taking that holiday uh, overseas, yeah? Well, you know, and after all we've been through as a society uh, in the last 14 months, uh, you can clearly see huge pent-up demand uh, and desire for people to get back out and experience the world, and particularly as vaccination rates are going up and as individuals get vaccinated. I can speak personally, you know, me and my wife took our first trip together a couple of weeks ago. Um, we're planning to take uh, the kids to Europe this summer. Uh, and you just see that pent up demand from people. And I think an increasing confidence. And look, all of us, including the CDC and others, are getting more and more confidence as we get more and more data uh, about how effective vaccines are at reducing particularly severe infections um, and mortality rates. And, and so, you know, what we see in the business is you know, some cautions from people and doing things like testing or requiring vaccines, but there's just such pent up demand uh, that the demand is really strong uh, for any of the borders that are open. And let me just ask for the countries where there are travel advisories, but Americans are not banned from traveling there. Does the United still fly to some of those some of those countries? And do you get any pushback from employees about that? Uh, we do fly, well, especially now where there's so many countries that, that are on the travel for advisory. Uh, normally, that travel for advisories are, you know, countries like uh, Iran, North Korea, Afghanistan. It's a pretty small list. And so normally we wouldn't be flying there. But in today's environment where, you know, you just put a whole bunch of countries on, um, uh, some of those countries are on. But look, I'll just take one example. Israel is on the uh, travel for advisory list and the vaccinations are are... They're really good here in the United States, but the number of people vaccinated in Israel, percentage of the population is about double. And by the way, the case rate uh, in Israel is one-tenth uh, of what it is here in the United States. So, you know, I'm hopeful that those kind of travel for level four advisories are a little rearview mirror looking uh, compared to the forward looking. Um, but at the moment, you know, we're flying to places like, like Israel. We began talking earlier about business travel, and I'd like to, to drill down on that a, a little bit. We've had a number of CEOs, including from your industry um, on Washington Post Live, who said that it's possible that our economy, our, our ways of operating, uh, our ways of having business interactions, meetings, just is going to be changed forever by the experience of the, of the pandemic, and that business travel just won't look the same in the future uh, as as it has in the past. What's your your feeling? You've got to make long-term projections and forecasts. What are your economists and and what does your own gut tell you about about whether we'll come back to something like what we had before? 
So uh, I'm going to give you an opinion that is certainly the minority today, but it was a lot bigger minority a year ago when we started making decisions. And, and really a year ago at about this time, we kind of went through a bunch of conversations. This is more of a gut decision than it is something from an economist, because every survey that you could look at, business traveler said, oh, it's never going to come back to, to the where it was. Uh, but we reached, uh, uh, made a different bet. Um, and our bet is that business travel is going to come back. And that is because business travel is about human relationships and human interactions. And as tough as this pandemic has been, it has not changed human desire to be together, need to connect. Uh, and if you watch the survey data, it's moving closer and closer and closer to a full return to travel as people start to realize uh, what they've missed as they've, go, as they've gone through the pandemic. And I talked to one of our top five travel providers, the CEO um, at this time last year, who told me as advice, like business demand is gonna, we're gonna permanently have 50% less business demand and you're gonna have to adjust your business for that. Uh, I then talked to the same CEO in the fall of last year. We said, well, we realized we've gotta go see our customers and our clients uh, but we're going to not do the internal business demand for meetings and celebrations that we used to do. So we'll be down 25%. I talked to that same CEO in January. He said, well, we realize like our culture, it's really hard to keep our culture together if we're not together. And at least for the first year or two, once we're allowed to travel, we're going to have to travel more than we did in 2019. And I can almost guarantee you that that individual doesn't remember. They said down 50, down 25, now up 20. Um, but that's what's happening. Um, and it's really a function of it is human nature. And business travel is not about transactions. It's about relationships, building and maintaining relationships. And you just can't do that through video. Uh, and so I continue. We've made the bet uh, that business travel is coming back. I feel more confident about it today than when we made the bet a year ago. Uh, but we do believe that business travel is going to come back. That's really fascinating, and the the, the most uh, upbeat account really of of how we're going to come back to something closer to the, to the old normal than we than we might think. I want to ask you about a, a small point for your business, but a, a, a one that a lot of flyers think about, and that's change fees. During yeah. the pandemic, I assume United, but I know many airlines waived change fees. Uh, are you going to reimpose them uh, or are you thinking about uh, altering that uh, part of your business? So one of the big decisions that we made, I think we did it in June, uh, was to announce that we were permanently eliminating change fees. Uh, and, and this is a decision that I've wanted to make for 20 years of my career in aviation. Um, I've joked, sort of joked uh, at least, that, uh, but because it's a billion dollar decision, you kind of have to be the CEO to make the decision. Uh, but we have permanently eliminated change fees at United, and then most of the others in the industry have followed and copied us. But the point on this one is actually a bigger point, which is we've really tried to change how customers feel about United Airlines. And this is as much a cultural point as something that customers requested, because our employees, we put them in this position of charging change fees, and, and somebody has a really good reason to need to change their flight, a relative passed away or ill, and they were forced to tell that customer, okay, you can change your flight by a week, but we're gonna charge you $200 to do it. And our employees knew that wasn't right. And we forced them to defend the indefensible. And when we did that, it's hard to, for them to believe. When we tell them we want you to do the right thing for customers, they look at you like, well, you don't mean it because you make me do these things that are bad for customers. So it's bigger than just eliminating change fees, which is great for our customers, but it permanently. It's also about changing the customers and really convincing our employees 
that we want them to be empowered to do the right thing for the customer. And we've got to knock down these obstacles. There's others I could talk about. These obstacles and these barriers that prevent them from doing the right thing for the customer and make it hard for them to do the little things because they don't trust us when we ask, when we tell them that. Um, and they were right to not trust the leadership team when they when we asked them to do those kinds of things. I, every frequent flyer uh, is going to be happy to hear what you just said. But, and I'm curious what else is on your list of, of things that just bug, bug your customers that uh, you're thinking we ought to fix that and, 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 and uh, maybe you will change them. Are there any others that you'd be willing to mention? Yeah, so here's one big one. Um, we've implemented something that we call Connection Saver, which you know, for anybody that flies a lot and takes connecting flights, you've probably had the experience of running through an airport to meet your connecting flight because your inbound flight was a little late. You're completely stressed out about it. Um, and perhaps they, an airline, could have been United, could have been our, one of our competitors, slammed the door in your face and the airplane went and you're stuck on the ground trying to figure out how in the world am I gonna get where I'm supposed to go. We have this program called Connection Saver where we're now willing to delay flights to wait on those connecting customers. Yesterday, we had uh, 1,619 customers uh, whose connections we saved that would have missed a connection um, you know, at some point in the past. And we're the only airline that I'm aware of in the world that has an automated system that does this. But it's another one of these examples of, it's not just about those 1600 customers whose connections we saved yesterday. It's about how, it's about convincing our employees that it's okay to do the right thing for customers. Because if you're a gate agent and you've spent your career with management telling you, please take care of customers, care about customers, do the right thing. But you've been forced to slam the door in people's faces every day you don't believe it. Um, and because we've started making those kinds of changes, the number of emails I'm getting about all kinds of little things that are happening in the operation, our employees, our people feel empowered to do the little things uh, and to take care of, of customers. And there's a no, there are a number of other examples. That's, a, that's one of the big ones that we're doing. Um, but there are a number of those kinds of examples of, of just eliminating the kinds of policies that put employees in the position of having to defend the indefensible um, and feeling like they're doing the wrong thing for the customer. And when they feel like the company supports them to do the right thing for the customer, they're the ones that can make the airline great. And in the last year, we've had a 30 point improvement in our net promoter scores from doing stuff like this. And, and I just recorded a video for our employees this morning and said, I hope this is the most enduring change. That we've got a lot of change from COVID, but that this will be the most enduring change, the really changing the way we behave, interact with customers, and changing how customers feel when they fly United Airlines. Uh, again, that, that's uh, news that uh, every frequent flyer is going to going to really uh, enjoy. Having pounded on on gate doors yeah. a number of times while a plane was sitting there, and yeah. I was missing my connection, I, I'm I'm happy to hear that. Let me ask you about another thing that you've been trying to do to reassure customers and, and to to reassure your your own employees, and that's uh, cleanliness, uh, mm -hmm. travel safety that, that goes along with making sure that your your, your planes are, are as COVID-free as, as, as they can be. Tell us about uh, how you've gone about that. You formed an alliance with Clorox and the Cleveland Clinic uh, to figure out the best cleaning disinfectant yeah. protocols. Just tell us a little bit about that. Well, in aviation in general, and certainly at United, when we say safety is number one, I mean, it is, I don't know of any other industry that is anywhere close to what aviation does in terms of safety, and it really is. Uh, and so when the pandemic first started, 
we did a number of firsts and a number of things. We were the first we formed this partnership, as you talked about, we call it Clean Plus, with Clorox and Cleveland Clinic. Um, and look, I was blessed to be able to get on the phone with the CEOs of both those organizations whenever I wanted to and just talk through things. Because if we remember back, you know, a year or 13 months ago, there was so much uncertainty and just being able to talk through things. And no one knew the right or wrong answers a lot of times, but being able to talk through it helped and and led us to take a lot of steps. Like we were the first airline to require masks. Once it became clear this was aerosolized, we required masks. And for what it's worth, got some blowback from that um, for a few weeks. But a few weeks after we'd done it, kind of at least most of the country, um, and mostly across the board was re was requiring masks and it was normal, but we led on that. Um, you know, we uh, we partnered with the Department of Defense and DARPA to do kind of the biggest study that's ever been done uh, about transmission um, of viruses on board aircraft and essentially concluded um, because of, particularly because of the robust airflow on the systems and the other safety protocols, that it was almost impossible uh, to, to catch COVID on airplanes. And we started cleaning protocols and the spraying that was in the video uh, on, between every flight um, on aircraft and, and really have just taken a leadership position uh, on understanding first what the risks are, uh, and then when there are risks, taking whatever steps are required uh, to mitigate and eliminate those risks. So let me ask about the obvious next step in this, and that's vaccination. I've read that back in January, you expressed support for the idea of requiring your own employees to be to be vaccinated. I'm curious whether you've made a final decision on that, what kind of pushback you're getting from your employees, if any, uh, just where that stands. So we, I, I, was, I, went, I was public, well, I was talking to our employees, but those events all become public, um, <laughs> telling them that uh, that my own view was, you know, that it is a safety issue, it is a health issue. We're all better off um, if we get vaccinated and particularly for employees uh, that interface with other employees, interface with customers, travel overseas. We have, you know, we have five flights a day to India right now uh, that are flying there that, uh, that my desire would be to get to the point where we were all vaccinated. Uh, also realistic enough to acknowledge that, you know, if there was no government mandate for that um, and there were not other corporations willing to do it, uh, it'd probably be hard for United to do it um, on our own. Uh, I've been really encouraged once vaccines have come out. Uh, we were one of the first, we set up pods in many of our hubs. In fact, Newark actually uh, just opened uh, today. Uh, the governor was there with us opening that pod. Uh, but we had a lot of them earlier where our employees were higher in the, in the list um, from the CDC and the guidance and so could start getting vaccinated. And as people started to see their coworkers get vaccinated and see that it's okay, um, you know, the vaccine hesitancy was less than I thought it would be or that we were worried it would be or what surveys were telling us at the time um, it would be. And so to date, we haven't required it. Uh, it's still something we think about, um, particularly for our crews. I mean, I, I will admit that, you know, watching what's happening in India, Brazil, um, Peru uh, has us back again, having some intensive discussions about whether it's the right thing to do, at least for for those work groups. Um, and we're talking to the unions about it as well right now. But, uh, you know, I continue to, to, to wish that we could get to the point um, where, you know, we, we uh, were all vaccinated, um, but we haven't mandated it quite yet. Do you have any uh, rough estimate as to what percentage of, of your workforce or air crews, if we want to narrow it, uh, ha have been vaccinated? We aren't sure because a lot of people have gotten vaccinated on their own. Um, you know, they went to 
their local Walgreens or, or wherever and gotten vaccinated. Uh, my guess is that we're probably at, uh, you know, uh, the 50 to 60% range, but it is a guess because we have some data, people that have gone to our clinics, we have data on that. Um, and so we kind of know about a third of the employees, um, but the rest we aren't certain of, but uh, you know, my guess would be in the 50 to 60% range right now. And I take it you're assuming there'll be a demonstration effect and that those numbers will increase as, as employees see other employees um, uh, being comfortable expanding their what they can do. We did. We, we saw that already, you know, particularly in places where there was a pod at the airport. And so when people were getting their shots, you know, Denver was a good example of getting their shots at Denver, um, you know, and we'd get an allocation of vaccines and they, we'd have a sign-up sheet and we'd go through the entire allocation each day. Um, and as people, you know, had friends and coworkers that they saw get the vaccine and everything was okay, their confidence level starts to gradually increase. And, and, uh, and so I hope that, that we'll continue to see that, um, not just at United Airlines, it's important obviously for our whole society uh, that we get to a high level of vaccination. Um, and, but I'm cautiously optimistic uh, that, that we're headed in that direction. And, and Scott, one more question on, on this subject. Even where people have decided that mandatory requirements to be vaccinated are just not possible, they're thinking a lot about incentives to get people to, to be vaccinated. And you can imagine on, on airlines, uh, special seating for people who've been vaccinated and can display uh, uh, verification of that. Uh, other ways that they feel safe and, and in a sense are, are, are rewarded for having uh, made an effort to, 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 to be safe. Have you thought about things like that? Uh, you know, it's sort of, it's not economy plus, it's vaccinated plus. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a great idea uh, and we have thought about it, but, you know, I, I think almost any of those ideas uh, get run afoul of the regulatory requirements that we have. Um, and, and absent a government mandating uh, vaccines to fly or a government rule, um, it's it probably not something we can do um, unilaterally from a customer perspective. That said, my guess is that most long haul international borders are going to require you to be vaccinated to go. So for anybody that wants to travel long haul um, and go to Europe uh, this summer or go to New Zealand or Australia, this our North American winter, um, I suspect you're gonna have to have a vaccine. Right now, you know, there's three countries in Europe that are open, Iceland, uh, Greece, and Croatia, but you have to have been vaccinated to go. And by the way, demand is through the roof um, for those flights uh, because it's a place that people can go. And um, when the EU president talked about it, um, you know, talked about it as requiring a vaccine, uh, we have discussions between the US and UK ongoing. Uh, my guess is that there's gonna be some government fiat that requires vaccines internationally. Um, but unlikely that anything, at least in the foreseeable future domestically, uh, will be requiring a vaccine. And I think it would require some government support slash action uh, in order to make that legally possible. In the remaining uh, eight or so minutes we have, Scott, let me ask you about some climate related issues uh, where United has done some interesting things. Uh, in Fe February, you announced an agreement with a company called Archer Aviation to develop uh, electric aircraft, sort of air taxi, I uh, gather vertical takeoff uh, uh, planes. 
uh, I'm curious when those might actually be be flying uh, passengers. And also I'm curious about whether your uh, kind of future planners imagine there could ever be long haul electric uh, engines that would get us safely across yeah. uh, these long distances. Uh, well, thanks, David, for bringing up sustainability. It's a personal passion um, of mine and has been for at least 30 years. And um, it's a good thing we only have eight minutes left, or I, I would take the whole 30 minutes and talk about it if you let me, um, because we've got a bunch of things that we're doing in addition to electric aircraft. Uh, the first answer, though, is electric aircraft uh, are not going to replace big long haul airplanes flying to India, um, really flying a lot of customers long distances. And the problem is, the energy density is simply not high enough in the batteries um, for airplanes. There's too much weight as a result for airplanes to take off uh, and fly very far, and it's it's simply physically not possible. Um, even hydrogen, which has much higher energy density than a battery, is only one third as much as energy density as jet fuel, which means you have to have three times the weight of hydrogen on the airplane to cover to create the same power and cover the same distance, and and that's not going to work. But electric aircraft, uh, EVTOL aircraft, uh, and perhaps some others, flying short distances, smaller markets with fewer people on board uh, is a real possibility. And that's why we partnered with Archer. Uh, we may have some other partnerships coming, but that was the first partnership. Um, really, part of that is about, that's kind of, it's almost a helicopter replacement. And I could talk about kind of the service that we envision, you know, get you from downtown Manhattan uh, out to Newark, kind of a premium service. It's quieter than a helicopter. It's safer than a helicopter because it has 12 rotors. Um, it's environmentally friendly, uh, but it's really not replacing our aircraft at, at that point. But we're also wanting to be invested in leading edge technology companies, because when you think about climate change and the 50 billion tons of climate that mankind emits every year, we're gonna need a lot of technology uh, to solve this problem. And it is the biggest problem that our generation faces and the one we must solve or our children, our grandchildren will never forgive us. We have to solve it. And so part of this is about just being in the mix with technology. And I don't even know everything that might come out of it, uh, but trying to be leading edge so that you can think, have forward thinking about real solutions uh, that can solve the problem because it's a solvable problem, but it's not as easy as a lot of people think it's going to be. It's a really difficult problem, um, but it is a solvable problem. And we want to be part of the, the solution. Um, and the reality is United is the leading airline, global uh, airline uh, in terms of, of our, our carbon and sustainability and climate change efforts. Uh, but it's also something that we want everyone to join us. We don't want to be a leader in this. It's like safety. Uh, we should all be trying to do the same thing together. So uh, let me just ask you to pursue this a little, a little further. You have something you call the Eco Skies Alliance. And I think, uh, Scott, that you, you've made a public commitment to reduce your greenhouse gas emissions 100% by 2050. That, that's an amazing uh, yeah. uh, goal. T tell us how you're going to, uh, how you're thinking about getting there. It's such an extraordinary so, chain. We've made a commitment that is different than I think that anyone else, certainly airlines have made, but even other companies, we've made a commitment to hundred percent green. And what we say, when we say hundred percent green, we mean we will get there without traditional carbon offsets. Uh, the ways we're going to, the way we're going to get there is sustainable aviation fuels is, is number one. Um, that is take, you know, we've, we're 
a large investor in a number of companies that are, are kind of leading edge on technology again. Uh, one of them, for example, takes municipal solid waste and instead of just dumping it in the dump, it goes through a facility and you can make a few gallons of jet fuel out of each ton of, of, of waste, um, which is, and by the way, then that's carbon that doesn't go into the landfill and turn into methane and methane um, leaks coming out of landfills. Uh, sustainable aviation fuel is one. Number two is the electric aircraft and R&D in that space that we talked about. But number three, and the one that I think is most important for not just air airlines, but for everyone to think about is carbon sequestration. And I talked about the 50 billion tons of carbon that are emitted every year. Um, and today, I, one of my huge frustrations with corporate America is they're relying on carbon offsets. And you see announcement after announcement, if we're gonna be net zero and you go ask what they're doing, they're paying some fund, some amount of money to check the box and say, we bought a carbon offset. And, and, and the reality is most of these carbon offset programs are planting trees. The vast majority of them are things that were gonna happen anyway. You know, Don't cut down trees that have never been cut down. So they really aren't helping um, climate change because they're not changing anything. But even if they are a good project, even if it, you're planting some incremental trees, mankind emits 4,000 times as much carbon today as we did in the pre-industrial era. There is not room on the planet to plant 4,000 times as many trees. And as long as every corporation gets there in the convenient, easy way and checks the box on carbon offsets, the planet is never going to solve this problem. We have to stop doing that. And carbon sequestration is about taking carbon out of the atmosphere, permanently storing it underground for tens of millions of years. And we're partner uh, in with uh, Occidental and 1.5 um, in what will be the world's largest carbon sequestration project. Each plant will sequest permanently sequester the equivalent of planting 40 million trees per year. But importantly, it's incremental and it's permanent and it's scalable. Um, and that is going to have to be part of uh, our solution. Um, for any way you do the math, it's hard to get, get through the math without having sequestration uh, be a part. And so we're, we're proud to be um, a launch on, on the first large-scale commercial project there. Scott uh, Kirby, thank you for a fascinating look at, at your industry and at uh, United. Uh, thanks for, for joining us on Washington Post Live. Thank you, David. I enjoyed it. So uh, we will be uh, back uh, tomorrow with Washington Post Live first look with Jonathan Capehart uh, at nine o'clock uh, and at noon, uh, House Majority Whip James Clyburn uh, will be will be joining us at three thirty tomorrow. I will be interviewing General Jay Raymond, who is the chief uh, of the U.S. Space Force, the newest branch of our military. Join us tomorrow for our programming here at Washington Post Live. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.